from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service. A podcast that shares the stories of the public servants who work on our behalf every day to make the country safer, healthier, and more prosperous. I'm Lauren D. Young-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Kleinkircher. Today, we are honored to have Congressman Andy Kim from New Jersey's 3rd District join us as our final guest of our second season. Motivated by a deep commitment to service instilled in him by his parents, Congressman Kim started out working as a community organizer with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless while a first-generation college student at the University of Chicago. Later, he became a career public servant serving at the United States Agency for International Development, the Pentagon, State Department, the White House National Security Council, and in Afghanistan as a civilian advisor to Generals Petraeus and Allen. In 2018, Kim chose to apply his unique combination of experiences in the executive branch and as a career public servant to run for a seat in the House of Representatives. Once elected, he became the first Korean-American Democrat elected to Congress. With his commitment to being transparent and accessible to his constituents, Congressman Kim has hosted monthly town halls for his district, with over 57 town halls done so far. We will hear from Congressman Kim about his career journey in public service, what he's doing to build greater trust in government among not only his constituents, but all Americans, and his proposed legislation to create more pathways for all to pursue national service opportunities. Welcome, Congressman Kim. So our first question for you is one we ask everyone, and they all have incredible stories, but I am I am very eager to hear about your personal one. Um, and that is, what motivated you to enter a career in public service and work for the federal government? Yeah, thank you. I think about that a lot. Um, I don't come from a family of people who work in government and that kind of effort. So I'm the son of immigrants. My mom and my dad, uh, you know, moved here from the, from South Korea. They were born at the end of the Korean War. And, you know, when they came here, they didn't know a single person in the entire Western hemisphere of Earth, you know. And I, so I think about that kind of grit and the determination that they, they had, but also how they were able to survive here. They always talked about it as a community. And that sense of community was something that was not optional for them, like they needed it in order to survive and to be here. So they often talked to me about this sense of service through that means. They, they often said, you know, service isn't just a job, it's a way of life. So it's not like a job you do and like, you know, you do a nine to five and then you like hang it on up on the coat rack and you pick it up the next day. The way they described it to me is that it describes your fundamental responsibility to other people, whether they are family, friends, or strangers, that the only way they were able to survive here was that other people brought them in and they were all strange. None of them were family. And initially, none of them were friends. So, you know, my mom and my dad, like my dad was, you know, someone who who grew up homeless in Korea and ended up getting a PhD in genetics here in America, and then dedicating his life to try to cure cancer and all his That was his service. 
you know, my mom was a nurse. That was her service. I wanted to be of service to some level. I didn't necessarily think it would be government, but I was a sophomore in college when September 11th happened. And I, you know, I'm part of that, that generation of people, many people that decided that we were going to make some big changes in our lives and, and step up at a time that our country needed us. If it wasn't for September 11th, I'd, I'd probably be some, you know, mediocre microbiologist somewhere doing some research or something that, but uh, I instead you know, decide to, to go the route of political science and international relations, always with the idea in mind that I would be in government at some point. So it, it was interesting to see how much of a shift there was for me. I think you're absolutely right. There is, there are many in your generation of public servants whose lives just fundamentally changed in 2011. And so Congressman, I've worked with you in a number of agencies before, but even just looking at your bio and your resume, I did not realize quite how many federal agencies and places and government you had touched before and you've been a part of. Walk us through your journey in public service, because this is not typical that the number of roles that you've held, though I guess maybe it was a little bit typical for the era at the time. How did you start in the federal government and what was your journey through that like? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to win a scholarship called the Truman Scholarship. Yeah, which is a great, great program. Great program. And I was just recently appointed to the board. So I'm excited to, to now be able to support it in that kind of capacity. But, you know, initially it was a program that was meant to identify young people that were interested in service to some level, especially government service. I kind of thought of it more as, you know, just like a support yeah. money for graduate school. I was interested in service. Think about it more in that way. I was just like, you know, hand me that like publisher clearinghouse giant check and I will go to grad school. I didn't necessarily think that it would, that the most impactful parts of that scholarship were actually not the monetary aspect, but it was the people, you know, I had you know, Truman scholars, you know, standing with me when I was getting married, they were friends, they are part of my life, but I also you know, it gave me that foot in the door. It started, it got me started at USAID as an intern. And I'm somebody that always dreamt of doing an internship for the federal government, but I, I could never afford to spend, uh, you know, a, a, a summer uh, in DC, uh, have an unpaid internship. It was just, I just did not have the money in, in my account to accomplish that. So the Truman Scholarship gave me free board for a summer. And that allowed me to, to be able to come and do that. I caught the bug and, you know, was working on Africa issues for USAID. I was able to, to turn that into a, a longer gig and then went off to grad school. But again, always with the sense that, you know, that I'd be able to come on back. So, you know, I had that opportunity at USAID to start with and, and that was under the, you know, the Bush administration. And that really, you know, was an, an important reflection for me to work under that administration. And then, you know, I had an opportunity to come and work at the Senate for a little bit. And that, again, that was under a Republican Senator, Senator Luger, who I had built a relationship with and something that I was able to turn to for advice and, and thoughts. And, and it was a, extraordinary to be able to work with him. And then after that, you know, was, was very much deciding that you know, I wanted to come back in a career way. You know, when I was at the Senate, I shared an office with this mid-level State Department official who literally his first day was my first day at the, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he would share so much about his life and 
what it meant to be a diplomat, what it meant to work at the State Department. And he answered all my questions and he became this, you know, mentor to me. He went on and, and was an extraordinary public servant. He ended up being ambassador. This is Chris Stevens, who was you know, tragically killed in, in Benghazi. Someone who I feel blessed to have known because he is the best of us. You know, he was a, you know, the, the consummate public servant, you know, someone who was really willing to literally risk his life for the country, but always with just this deep energy and patriotism. So, you know, he was the one that got me inspired to, to try to start up at the State Department. And I always try to honor his memory. Ambassador Stevens, I had no idea that you had worked with him. He, so just to build on that point, one of the things he did so well was when he met people who were in different levels of their career, whether he was approaching you as a mentor or not, he was always thinking, so you're like, all right, how can I help you think about what happens next? either in formal conversations or informal one, and saw that, I think, as a part of his service, that his service was not only the work that he was doing, but it was in building an amazing group around him who went off to do incredible work in lots of different places. So you went on after state to serve in Afghanistan as a civilian advisor to several four stars, to be the White House National Security Council, be the Pentagon. And then ultimately, you know, several years later, after you had started, you decided to make a move that not many people do to run for office in the House of Representatives. And there were so many options that you could have taken. What was it that persuaded you that that was the that was the moment for you? It was the choice that you wanted to make. I, I wish there was like a perfect moment. <laughs> but, you know, I look back on it and I'm still pretty blown away by the decision that I made. It was tough. I was only 34 years old at the time when I first started running for Congress. I never ran for office before. You know, as I mentioned, I don't come from a family of politics. I had no idea what I was doing. I had you know, a, a one and a half year old and a newborn. It was crazy when I looked back on it, but I, I asked myself the same question that I asked myself before every other job I've ever had, which is this question of where can I be of most impact? And that was something that took me to Afghanistan. It's something that took me to the White House, National Security Council, all of these jobs that I knew were going to be hard and tough, but with potentially allow me to be very impactful. I guess the main difference that this time around was, was the fact that I was a dad and all of a sudden I didn't have the ability to just think about foreign policy and not really get too caught up in what was happening domestically. I was all of a sudden thinking a lot more about healthcare and education and other things like that inherently by, because I'm a dad now. And I saw the country going in a direction that I was, I was deeply concerned about. And in particular, I saw my representative of this home district of, that I grew up in, you know, my, the district I now represent in Congress, the district that I ran for 2018, it, where I did my entire kindergarten through 12 in the public school system here. You know, it, it's where my parents are retired, where I grew up. This is our home. And I just felt like, this is the kind of impact that I want to try for now. Initially, I didn't think I could pull it off in many ways. I, I didn't think I had a really good shot of being able to win. But what was interesting is that didn't affect my calculus too much because at some point I felt like I was willing to take that kind of risk and that even running to start with was part of that impact that I could have. 
So it was the toughest de decision that I made in my career. Very, very difficult, but I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to pull off. So Congressman, listening to your journey, it is a little bit unusual when we think of your story against other members of Congress who have not served in other capacities in government. So given your work as a career public servant and under both Democratic and Republican administrations, how do you feel that your experience in the executive branch influences how you think about legislation and oversight? Well, first of all, just in terms of my approach to the job, it has a very fundamental difference for me. The fact that I started my career in a nonpartisan career capacity is probably one of the most influential aspects of, of shaping how I see myself as a congressperson. You know, I worked alongside people for almost a decade in national security at the State Department that still to this day, I don't know if they're Democrats or Republicans. You know, I, I often say when you're in Afghanistan, no one there asks you if you're a Democrat or Republican. You just serving. You just serve the country. And that approach of having, you know, having worked under the Bush administration at the beginning of my career, having worked for a Republican senator, being the only other experience that I had on the Hill before becoming a member, that that is incredibly defining. So so that aspect you know, when you're in that situation room and you're dealing with these issues, yeah. like you're not looking around the room and saying, oh, like, is that a Democrat idea, Republican idea, who's doing it, you know? Whereas on the Hill, that very much is part of it. You're in a hearing room and you literally are physically divided from each other. You know exactly who's a Democrat, who's a Republican. And you can see how whoever says it affects how people react to it. And as a result, you're, you're not always looking at things based off of just the merit of the idea. You're looking at it based off of this broader context. And that's something that I never experienced before, really, in any deep way when I was in the executive branch, uh, quite in that same capacity. So that's a big part of it. The other aspect of it is, you know, having worked in multiple different you know, departments and in, in agencies, I, I just have this level of understanding of how these organizations work how their bureaucracies are structured, how, what they're having the fluency in their, in their language. That helped me actually when I was at the National Security Council, but with, in terms of how to coordinate across all these different departments and agencies. And it, it helps me in Congress. It helps me because I used to be on the other side of the room when it came to congressional delegations in Afghanistan or elsewhere. I, I know how the executive branch prepares for that kind of encounter and engagement. I briefed many high-level executive branch uh, officials before they go up to the Hill, and I understand what kind of questions they're anticipating. I'm just, it just helps me understand how they're engaging and where I can be of most help, but also where I can try to get an honest answer, You know, where I can try to navigate and frame something in a way that can try to elucidate some some more productive conversation. And sometimes that doesn't always happen in a committee room. Um, sometimes that requires me to build relationships and to talk with people in, in a more private setting and try to establish some sense that overcheck doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be 
uh, aggressive or that this is, you know, about, you know, some viral moment or something like that, that many of my colleagues are always seeking. So those are some of the things that I think about. And it also just fundamentally affects the kind of issues I choose to work on in terms of where I think I can get things done, what is achievable and what is movable. That has always been something that is helped by the, the experience I've had on the executive branch, understanding, you know, what are things, some things that I think we can push on. That's been a big part of how I've made decisions and prioritization in terms of my work on the Hill. Do your colleagues on the Hill ever seek your advice or guidance or ask about your experience having been on the other side? Say like sometimes, not, not really. You know, I, I think... Every once in a while, you know, I mean, like, for instance, there was this one issue that I was dealing with where when I was at the State Department, I was, you know, I was banned from working on, on issues related to Korea because of, I'm Korean-American. It was, you know, they, they called it an assignment restriction and quite vocal about this since going on the Hill because, like, disrespectful at the time. You know, I, I'd just gotten back from Afghanistan. I like served out there for this country and to then come back and have my employer, the State Department, which literally is our representative to the rest of the world, say that they can't trust me is basically what I took away from that. That in some ways, like, you know, this idea that we could trust you on these other things, but when it came down to, to your ancestral homeland, that like, we can't trust you on that. That made me feel like I... They thought I'm not 100% loyal to this country. And honestly, it made me feel like I'm not 100% American, that I'm American until my heritage, right? So that was something where people on the Hill were already engaged on this issue to some extent before I came into Congress. But because I actually had experience on this, you know, that was a place where people came to me and, and wanted me to speak out, wanted to learn from me and that kind of capacity on issues that I do have some expertise on, especially when it comes to the Middle East, um, when it comes to other issues, you know, Chairman Meeks and, and Chairman Smith of, of Armed Services for Foreign Affairs. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that they've given me opportunities to lend some of my thoughts and perspectives. So in that committee structure, there's been more of that. But one thing I will say is that <laughs> there isn't necessarily like a great forum through which we can necessarily like remind people about what our backgrounds are before Congress. You know, it, it's this kind of weird experience. Where, like, like, and I'll, I'll admit it myself, like, I don't actually know what all of my colleagues did before Congress. I don't actually, like, if you named off a, a random member of Congress, I may not be able to tell you, like, what are their top three priorities? And, and that's what I find challenging about the, the body is that I went from being like a subject matter expert. You know, I did, I did a PhD on issues related to the U.S. policy to the Middle East. I worked on that. My job at the White House was to know more about ISIS, the group, the terrorist group ISIS than anybody else in the country. I went from that to then becoming, you know, then entering a job that's honestly probably the most generalist job in the entire nation. Like, like I literally have to respond to anything or be on the call to respond to anything. And I, I think we we don't always think about that strategically. We don't always think about like who's the best person to engage on or, or work on these types of issues. Who's the best messenger on particular issues based off of what we're facing? 
And it's that kind of lack of coordination and strategy that I, I find a little frustrating. Though The way I always kind of, I had this saying when growing up where I said, like, let's not play peewee soccer where we all just chase the ball. Like we have different positions. Yeah. Different things that we're good at, right? Like I'm not going to be the best messenger on some, some types of domestic policy issues that I might not have worked on as much. But like there's a crisis in, in the Middle East or in East Asia, maybe I can be someone that's better engaged on that. So that's the kind of stuff that we don't do enough of. That's fascinating. I want to pick up on a theme that you brought up a little bit around trust. This is, as you know, it's something that we at the partnership work on a lot is understanding the trust between the American public and government right now and believe that we as an institution should be doing all that we can to help strengthen that trust, not only because we think it's better for the country, but we think it's critical to our democracy to have a trustworthy government, but also one that the American public feels comfortable trusting. I know this is something that you care about and that you spend on the individual level a lot of time working on in, in different ways. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you try to build trust with your constituents in your district and some challenges you face in building that trust? Because as you point out, it's a, it's a really different role than coming from the federal government, which can be a little anonymizing for better or for worse. You are you are elected by those constituents. You are doing, as you say, it's the most general role on the planet. How do you think about building trust with them? Yeah, I think about this all the time. And, you know, in many ways, especially after the last couple of years, I have decided to dedicate my life to trying to address a singular question, which is how do we heal this country? Question has now become my life's work. And I am trying to do everything I humanly can to 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 answer it. I think about the work that I do. I'll just share this one story because I think it gets at so much about that trust, the sense that like that we live in the time of the greatest amount of distrust in, in government, probably in modern history. And I see it every day in this, this district. This one time, I, I, so I, I do these town halls every single month. I've now done 57 town halls in my district. And I remember a lot of people thought I was pretty crazy doing this. And I remember when I, when I first started, my second town hall ever was in a community that I probably lost by like 25 points. I mean, this is a district that Trump won in both 2016 and mm-hmm. 2020. And so for me as a Democrat to, to represent, um, there are a lot of areas that, where I recognize that people did not support my party or our candidate president. I'm one of only seven Democrats in the entire country that won a district that Trump won in 2020. So every day I wake up in a district that the majority of people, voters voted against my party. So I, I did this town hall and I, I took every single question. I, I, you know, there were a couple hundred people that were there. And, you know, I said this line that I now use every single time. I say, whether you voted for me or not, you're my boss. And my job is to serve you and your, your family. And I, I say that at every town hall. I took these questions. I listened to people. I tried to respond thoughtfully and honestly. And at the very end of this, there was a line of folks that were waiting to talk to me. And at the end of the line was this older gentleman who waited a while to talk to me. And he came up to me. He said, I just want you to know, I I didn't vote for you. And I was like, okay, thank you, sir. I appreciate you coming out today. And he said, uh, in fact, I was very hesitant to come to this town hall. And I said, okay, where is this going? And and then he like stuck out his hand, shook my hand and said, uh, but I'm glad I did. And then just walked off. That's all he wanted to see. And... I think about that moment 
constantly because I felt like it has really elucidated my belief of how we try to sequence what we need to to try to restore trust and heal this country. What I what I feel like happened is like I don't necessarily think I earned that man's vote by showing up in his town and taking those questions, but I do feel like I earned his respect. And that step of respect is now become so central to my belief of how we build trust. I don't think you can go from zero to trust immediately. I don't think you can actually trust somebody or some institution unless you respect that person and respect that institution. So therein lies the question, how do you restore trust and, and thereby say, how do you build respect? How do you gain respect? And part of that is about these town halls. It's about engagement, not just talking to people through digital ads and TV ads, getting out there to their community. I can't tell you how many communities I go to where people there, especially in, in sort of deep Republican areas, they're saying like, hey, look, you're like the first Democrat to show up and do a public forum in 20, 30 years. Like, you know, like this doesn't happen. It's about meeting people where they're at and being willing to go everywhere. The way I sort of describe it is that if you're only having comfortable conversations, that you're not talking to the right people. You're not putting yourself out there. As a political figure in a district that is divided, if I'm only having comfortable conversations, I'm not doing my job. I have to have a certain amount of discomfort in my life and I have to lean into that. So that's the kind of effort, that engagement to go out there and have those tough conversations, to be willing to do that. I've also come to believe that we need to think about the fundamentals of how and when people engage with government. So if the idea is that you gain their respect, well, what are you doing to gain their respect? It's not just that I showed up and put on a good smile and, and answered some questions. They want to know, are you delivering? And too many people think that my job in Congress is just about the legislation. That's a big part of it. But one aspect of my job, which is fundamentally transformed the way I think about government, is about the constituent service effort that I do. Whether, you know, when, when someone calls their congressional office, that's probably like a last resort, you know, like, like people don't have a problem immediately go, oh, I'm going to call my congressperson. Like you're usually at a place where people are like at the, at the wick's end and, and they, they're really, really struggling. How you respond and how you help them at their time of great need is so definitive in terms of whether or not they will then respect you and whether or not they will trust you. So my office, we have put so much effort into this constituent service work, trying to help people through the pandemic, even if it's just processing unemployment insurance or other things like that, that honestly aren't even the things that we could control the levers on. But just having someone that there that's working with you, it's given me this kind of deeper sense. And it's what I call now a, a customer service governance, this belief that Yes, people are concerned about big policies and, and direction and safety of, and security of our democracy and things like that. But, but they're honestly also internalizing it based off of their own interactions with government, whether that's the DMV, the post office, or getting a new passport or something else. Our ability to just show that we can be effective and efficient and, and deliver on very specific things and, and be responsive and show that kind of respect for them if we want to respect that 
that's something that I don't fully know where I'm, my head's going on all these issues, but it's, it's become so central to my thinking about what I want to do in government and my answer to that question about how do we earn that respect, earn that trust and, and heal this country. Particularly since I've been at the partnership has been very much on my mind that government for and with the people is not you voted and then I'll see you later. It should be something that it's a co-creation, that it is an iterative conversation. Moments are created to welcome that participation from others in the, the design of their own government. And to, as you say, to not have to rely on systems that are there for break glass, but to create a government that never needed that to begin with. And that's, that's not where we are right now, but I think that there are so many who have a vision of where we could go a little bit differently too. And, you know, in that spirit of co-creation, Lauren, that you just said, and, and Congressman, you mentioned, you know, you were growing up with this idea that service is a way of life. It's not a job, right? Yeah. So to that end, you introduced a package of legislation with this great phrase, supercharging national service and encouraging more Americans to engage in service in any type in their communities. So can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your legislation? Who do you partner with? And why why is this so critical to democracy to have more Americans engaged in service? The idea was trying to kind of reinstill that that sense of service. The idea that we we re-anchor our politics, not in partisanship and tribalism, but instead on service. And it's something that I've seen in my own district. Again, you know, as I said, you know, a district that, that Trump won twice. The only reason I've been successful in, in many ways has been because I tried to show people that there's a different way to do our politics. You know, people so often think of that a battleground district like mine, and it's like some Democratic army and some Republican army colliding every day and seeing who is the, the victor. But the, the secret is, if you do this job, is you recognize that the vast majority of people in my congressional district, they can't stand either part. They have lost so much faith in the system and that kind of capacity. So my best answer to it, and again, I'm not saying I have all the answers. You know, if there's one word I try to use for the politics I practice, it's humility. I don't know all the answers, but my best guess is that this idea of service could potentially help us get through this moment that we're in as a nation. And this constellation of legislation that I, I introduced is trying to show some architecture for national service in some capacity. And first of all, it's the idea that, you know, if people want to step up and serve this country in some capacity, like let's, let's not stop them. So the fact that half of all AmeriCorps applicants can't get a spot, that twice as many people apply to AmeriCorps every year than can get in, that we have spots. Like, if people want to serve our country, like, let's just make more spots. Like, let's not hold people back. We don't need to be selective about that on, on something that's trying to invest in our communities. So if somebody wants to step up and, and serve in some capacity, like, let's make the space for them. Let's give them that opportunity to, to serve. Let's try to cultivate that and expand that. So, you know, that what I've tried to do would increase the size of AmeriCorps and, and Peace Corps and some of these existing structures that we have. Also invest in volunteerism within our own communities and trying to restore that sense. I can't tell you how 
hard it is right now for different organizations, whether that's a volunteer firefighter group or EMS group or something else to be able to draw in people like element of just, you know, raising your hand and being part of the community. We're losing touch with that sense. We're losing the sense that we're part of something bigger than all of us. And that's what I'm trying to move away from is that, you know, in my mind, when I was in high school, like service was like so, an extracurricular that you did to like make your college application look a, uh, a little bit more attractive. But later I came to recognize that, you know, what my parents were trying to instill in me is that like, it's not just extra, like service isn't just like something you do if you have a little extra time. Uh, it is fundamental. It is inherent to what it means to be a, a citizen to be an American. And so that's what I'm trying to instill. And so these pieces of legislation are, are looking at different angles in which we can try to increase those opportunities, that we can draw in that kind of talent. And the way I sort of often frame it, especially when it comes to government work, is my first boss of the State Department had this line that always stuck in my head. He said, you don't have good government unless you have good people working in government. And that always stuck in my mind that like government is not just some anonymous bureaucracy. It's not just like some machine with cogs and wheels. It is reflective of the quality of the people within it. So, you know, if you have a um, narcissistic, egotistical, power hungry people in government, you will have that kind of government. But if you have people who are public servants that truly believe in that mission and that they recognize they're part of something bigger than all of us, they lead with humility and they believe that empathy is a strength, not a weakness, then you will have that kind of government. So like that, that is why I think it's so important that we push on that and try to instill in people that they have a role to play, whether or not they end up working in government or not, there's still a role for them to play. You know, well, just I'll, 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 I'll just answer just on this one point that I, I've been saying a lot lately, which is I say that, that I believe that the opposite of democracy is apathy. It's if people give up, if people believe they don't have a role to play, if they don't believe that their participation of voice matters, that's what I'm fighting against. You know, I'm fighting against that apathy from setting in, that sense of helplessness and giving people that sense of empowerment by showing up in their communities, by trying to come up with more opportunities for them to volunteer and to be of service to this nation cultivate that kind of mindset. I don't know if it's going to work. Many people have tried to reinvigorate national service and that service ethos in our country. And so I'm not going to say that I'm going to be able to get it across the line, but you have to keep trying. Well, and that's the question. So for something that sounds, you know, as you're saying, it, it's a different way of thinking about politics and it's about service. What are the obstacles to having something that sounds so incredible not happening. Yeah, well, then you you immediately start to realize that there's very different ideas of what service means and what kind of work qualifies for service. It's like the same thing when anyone in D.C. will probably tell you, oh, yeah, we definitely need to have civics education in this country. But then when you get down into what is taught, what is the curriculum, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, we, we disagree on that sense. You know, there are some people that I work with, colleagues of mine, that think AmeriCorps is a waste of money. They think that that kind of effort is not productive, that sometimes the, the work that people do, they think it's partisan in nature and, and things like that. And, and everything gets kind of sliced and diced through that kind of triumphal lens. I get very frustrated about that 
in terms of what qualifies for service. And that debate about that just overcomes this sense that we have to try something and that we should be pushing go forward and finding some area of that Venn diagram that we can agree upon. And there's also another question about like, you know, is government the place that, that needs to be catalyzing that? Can't it be charities and churches and nonprofits and others that, that lead the way? You know, why does it require taxpayer dollars and, and, and government in, engage on that? And so those are some of the debates that are happening. But, you know, I really hope that this legislation that I push forward on, as well as others that are of similar objectives, that we can push that kind of dialogue as, as a nation right now about what service means and how we should be trying to invest in it. Recognizing, like, I, I can't write a single piece of legislation that's going to rid our country of, of hate and division and toxicity. So a lot of what we're talking about here is also about this kind of cultural and personal mindset that I think we are trying to talk about instilling in this country. So those are some of the, the debates that are out there right now. So I'm going to close with a question that we also ask everyone on this podcast, and that is, what advice do you have specifically for young people um, and young leaders of color who may be interested in working in public service someday? Not everyone's going to have a career exactly like you, but what advice might you have for somebody who might be interested in pursuing one of the paths that you have taken on over the course of your career? It's a good question. I'll say two things here. You know, one, when, when I first started running for office, and a lot of people tell me, you seem like a nice kid and all, but there's no way that you can win this seat. You know, we're in my district, you know, I was 34 years old, as I mentioned. This is a district Trump won in 2016. And frankly, they also told me, like, straight to my face that it's also, you know, 85% white district, less than 3% Asian American population. And at the time, there were zero Korean Americans in Congress. And they just said, there's no way that this is going to be the district that yeah, brings a Korean American into Congress. And it was really hurtful. Even people within my own political party were saying things like that. And what I learned and what I hope people take away is that when we won this district, uh, we showed that an Asian American or a person of color, that we have every bit as much right to represent anywhere in this country as anybody else. That Asian Americans, I'm not just an Asian American leader. You know, I'm not just somebody that can only win in Asian American heavy areas. The way I sort of describe it is that we, we can't let other people define what we are or are not capable of accomplishing, you know, because of our the color of our skin, our last name, our gender, our sexuality, or, or any element by which people break down. So that sense of agency is something that I hope people retain. The second thing I'll just say is that I hope people think about the work that they do in terms of, of what kind of work satisfies you. You know, I, I often think through like, I can't allow, like, what are we like that? Some of the best days that I've ever had in my career. And how do I try to make that as frequent as possible? You know, that kind of opportunity and experience as frequent as possible. It required me to get a sense of like, what satisfies me? Like, what kind of work did I like to do? Do I like to travel a lot or do I like to be in? In, in meetings um, with, with, you know, high-level officials or do policy work or this or that. And it helped me crystallize that for me. And the way I say it is like service does not mean it's a life of sacrifice. 
you know, like I think too many people is framed as like you get lower pay, you know, you got a bureaucracy to deal with this or that. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Service can be satisfying. It can be sustainable. It doesn't have to be sacrifice. And I believe that 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 service is an honorable thing. And if I am lucky enough to serve this country for the rest of my life, I will feel blessed to be able to do that. And I hope others recognize that and don't approach it from the sense of like, oh, like I'll, I'll bite the bullet for a few years going to government and, and you know, I'll do that kind of sacrifice and then have other opportunities. Um, I hope people think about what satisfies them and that'll lead them to decide, you know, what kind of career would be fulfilling for them. So those are just a couple of things that I hope help people think through this kind of stuff. But what I will just say is I'm always open to trying to talk to folks, always trying to encourage people for those opportunities. So, you know, if there are, you know, especially younger people that are listening, um, you know, please, if I can be of any help, let me know. So Congressman, this has been fabulous conversation, um, both resonating deeply with the sort of work that we do at the partnership, but then also, frankly, like adding so much texture and layers to it that it makes me want to dive back into things later this afternoon. So um, thank you so much for taking the time with us. And Rachel, I'm sure you've enjoyed this just as much as I have. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rachel, there's almost 500 other members of Congress, and I'm sure many of them are incredible in other ways. But listening to Congressman Kim talk, it was one of the first times I've really heard an articulation of what public service means and how democracy should be this iterative conversation from somebody at that level. And I know many of them practice it and I know many of them are thinking of it, but saw it and I felt it in that conversation and we were like, yes, democracy and rebuilding trust is not just about words and messages. It is about creating moments where you can have that regular feedback. And how did you say about the productive discomfort that comes with that was that to me is where government and public service is really at its most meaningful. Right. If all of the conversations you're having are very comfortable, you're not having the right conversations. And that really resonated. And now I want there to be a prerequisite (laughs) that members of Congress serve in other parts of government first. Because when he talked about not knowing if the person sitting next to him was a Democrat or a Republican and you get the work done, and then you can just transfer all of this into Congress where there's literally a divide. And so whoever speaks, there's an automatic reaction or a bias or something. It it changes everything. And it's like, wait a minute, but these could have been the same people. And if I think back on jobs that I've had and how that could have been in the way to know who was on what side, and it wasn't a question and you didn't ask it and you got the work done for the good of the cause. So I, in all transparency, as you all know, I worked with a congressman at the National Security Council and at the Pentagon. And one of the things that we had to do when we were there to make sure issues that for decision were, were fairly dealt with is just articulate, here's the issue for decision. Here's how everybody feels about it. And this, this agency has this view. This person has this view. Get everybody a chance for fair hearing and use that as the input in the decision-making process. And exactly as you say, as he was talking, I thought, 
what, Congress would be a fundamentally different body if you treated it that way. I mean, if you yeah. were able to take that a very, very different approach than as, as he was talking about the um, people looking for viral moments. Right. Uh, and we talk a lot at the partnership around ways to reform the federal government, reform Congress in order to help rebuild trust. And I don't know if you would ever get support behind a slogan of like make Congress more like the National Security Council, but like that, that model of it is fascinating. And what strikes me about the congressman is, you know, in my mind, he's so very positive about things that you would think we all care about. How do we heal the country? How do we make things better for everyone? All very positive. And when asking the question of, but wait, why are there obstacles to that? I appreciated his really tangible answer of, you know, how people define that question. The answer to the question is not the same. And that the the basics of that we have twice as many applicants to AmeriCorps as we have spots. Well, like, then let's make more spots. Yeah, there are so every year on year, there's so many more people who want to become a presidential management fellow or apply for public service that are able to find a job. And not everyone's going to find the exact right spot for them, but people want to be a part of this conversation in this country. So how can we at the partnership and amongst friends and allies create more opportunities there? We do so much of that work at the partnership in the, the trying to improve federal hiring and federal talent mm-hmm. management. But the, the, as a congressman was talking, public service is not just that very specific civil service role, though it is so critical. There's lots of ways to serve your country and finding ways to make that more permeable and accessible, I think, is a, a critical thing that we don't pay as much attention to sometimes. Yeah, I was very encouraged on one hand by this conversation and the things that he, he would like to do and accomplish. And then on the other side, it, there is this reality of the state that we're in and, and some of the barriers that he's up against, which I appreciate are very real. But to his point, I mean, he is one for finding the productive discomfort and owning it mm-hmm. in a way that I think if we could all apply that sort of ethos to our lives, we would be uh, better off for it. But this was just such a delight to be able to have this conversation, to learn from it, and to both be somehow discouraged, but also deeply yeah. inspired at the same time. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk with him. Yeah, I agree. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, please check out the other episodes from our incredible second season and follow or subscribe to Profiles in Public Service wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check this episode's show notes to learn more about today's topic. And be sure to follow the Partnership for Public Service on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram to find out about future episodes once we start our next season. Profiles in Public Service is created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our writer and producer is Abigail Alpern Fish. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. See you next time.